<laughs> Here we go. We got a lot of ground to cover. We got a lot of ground to cover last week. Was week three. Moses' call and Jesus' baptism and we did not get to the part where there's a comparison of the significance of these divine commissions. I'm going to do something really interesting today. I'm going to bring in obviously the teaching because that's what we do. But I'm also going to have you take something with you for that which needs to be applied. The application. Because it's one thing to have information. It's another thing to be able to apply it. You know, the the nature of the heart is very clear. We don't have to be geniuses to understand where someone is doing where someone is headed, what they're doing. Just watch patterns. And so the Bible is filled with patterns. It's all about patterns. And as you start learning these patterns, you start realizing that God, like I said last week, God is never changing. His immutable self allows there to be a change in everything around, but not a change in him. God himself has the ability to merge in any type of society. Whatever the society is, he goes in, but he remains immutable. That's a strong nature of God that we need to comprehend. And that's why when we hear a story of 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, the immutable God allows us to hear that story and still be able to apply it today. It is applicable. Understanding that the comparisons and the significance of these divine commissions, Moses and Jesus, the comparisons are that they were both selected for a mission, but the difference between Jesus and Moses, I mean, there are stark differences. But one of the main differences is that Moses could be replaced and not Jesus. How do we know that? Because in Exodus, there was a moment in Exodus chapter 4 where he was about to be replaced. He was about to be replaced because he, there was an area of circumcision that had not been taken place. And of course, that was indicative of where you were and who you connected with. And it also was a storyline for the cross. It's the removal of the layer that is unnecessary. It's the removal of that sin, right? So Moses was about to be replaced, but not the assignment. This is important to catch. God's assignment will take place with or without you. Can anybody say amen on that? Here's how we know that. Yesterday, there was an assignment. My wife and I were not able to be there. But did the assignment continue? And from what I understood, the assignment was spectacular. See, if we leave or we're not here and there's no continuance, we're doing a bad job. Because that's called dictatorship. 
if you duplicate yourself, you're able to say, well, then yes, there is another me to carry, right? This is what it's about. So Moses would have been replaced. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, it was a time, a season, a moment, right down to his last breath on that cross. He made a statement to let it be known that everything was based on time, season, and moment, that it, it, if it did not happen at that moment in time, it would have been completely for nothing. On that cross, he said clearly, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What would cause Jesus at a certain point to say forgive them to the Father? What would cause him to even say to have that last moment? Remember, everything was a time. On that cross, he had to expire at what time, guys? At 3 p.m., what we consider 3 p.m. It had to be at that specific time because just like any other court case... You cannot alter the time. The time has to be at that particular moment. And so we understand that Jesus in his selection of who he is, it wasn't about the assignment superseding Jesus. Is that Jesus was the assignment himself. And so when you look at again what took place yesterday, I was proud to hear that a day like yesterday, you guys still continue. There was a lot of people there. I saw the pictures. And baptism took place, and people were getting baptized, and it was just an, an incredible moment. That shows the power of a flow. And if we're going to be called the flow, then let us flow in all aspects, in all areas. Oh, this is a picture from yesterday, guys. You know, again, we're talking about God saying, and in the midst of all of this, and in the midst of our obstacles, we're still here. We had to change the format. We're no longer facing here. You know, the chairs are, were always facing. Now we have tables, and we had to make it similar to that of a seminary because the assignment must continue. And with that said, I want to take a moment. Uh, he's not expecting it, but uh, I want to do it anyway, a father and son relationship back there. Uh, Ulysses is here, and Ulysses is the owner of this building. Can we say hi to him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do understand that as a son, you are an inheritor. And, and let me just say this about that stance that both of you guys have back there. That's... <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's good. The eternal concept of father and son is encapsulated in both of you standing right there. It is about inheritance. The whole universe is right now functional because of that concept right there. I've seen you with your son, and I've seen you with your father, and I've seen the dynamics be between you two guys. Can you imagine what it was like in eternity between father and son? Where they were discussing even the smallest things? So how are we going to do this? Well, let's see. Let's do this. Oh, so we have a problem. There's an issue with the humans that we created. Well, guess what? I'll go down and I'll be one of them. So that we can have continual relationship. And it's all about this relationship. So I thank both of you. Listen, thank you for coming through. Uh, this was a pleasant surprise. I literally walked out 
saw you going by and I saw you driving the car. Because that's what happens, right? The son has the vehicle. He drives with the vehicle and the father's like on foot just walking around. But it's the concept of father-son. We are here not because we think ourselves better than anyone, but rather because we want to be able to be the best version of ourselves in this universe. No one is better than you at you. You are the best you there is. And that's why whenever anyone tells you, do you want to be? No, I'm, I'm me. This is who I am. God's molded me to be me. And I, with my flaws, this is me. <laughs> this is me. Now, it doesn't mean you don't give room to become better. It just means it has to be a better version of you. All right, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with what I had left off last week, the comparisons of the significance of these divine commissions. The first one, divine call and commission. Both the burning bush encounter, we talked about it last week, the burning bush encounter was a God thing. People will try their best to shift things around, but the truth is at the end of the day, we know it's a miracle. It takes miracles to cause things to be looked upon as a God thing. If you can do it, it's not a God thing. It requires a supernatural moment and event. And that moment and event that is supernatural is what gives you now. Anybody ever had an encounter with God? Encounter, 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 encounter. One that you can, even to this day, you're like, I don't know how in the world that happened. I have several of those. And when you have an encounter with God, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. Because you're not living off of other people's ideas and concepts. You are living off of a moment or an encounter. So Moses' encounter with the burning bush was a stapled moment. It was a hallmark moment that was going to lead him for the rest of his life. And that's what these moments do. Now, I will say this. When it comes to understanding a tradition, write this down. Every tradition has a day one. Every tradition has a day one. Why is that important? Because if there was a day one, that day one has to be a wow enough moment to carry it to a day 2,000 or 3,000. Traditions require a, an impulse. And it also requires a mind that would come behind that and say, well, this is what I believe to be. But it also requires someone strong enough or influential enough to be able to make sure that it's a, there's a continuum. There's home traditions in the home and houses that are passed on from generation to generation. But every tradition has a day one. It started somewhere. Where did you get it from? Who told you that's the reason why? If you cannot find anything that you're doing in the origin of the word, if it's altered or shifted in any way, that's when you question it. Yes, I say even question traditions that have been part of your life all your life. One day you got to stop and say, where did this come from? Why am I doing this? 
What's the purpose of me doing it this way? Because traditions start off in the mind of someone who perceives something to be. And sometimes, not all traditions, but some, there is no basis. Rather than just my father told me or my mother told me, I should do this this way. Divine call and commission in the burning bush encounter, God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Their leading, being led out of Egypt has a lot of variables to it. And one of those variables we're going to really touch on today because I think it's extremely important that we do. I think that if we can understand the Exodus experience, we'll be able to understand our own salvation. This divine commission involves a specific task, leading the Israelites to the promised land, confronting Pharaoh or confront, confronting the enemy, and establishing a covenant community. Leadership and deliverance. Moses' commission focuses on the leadership role he is called to assume. One of the things about Moses' commission, I mentioned it earlier, if he didn't do it, somebody else would. And even if he did it, he st God still had a backup plan with his brother. Aaron was backup. Because, you know, we have excuses. Excuses are tools of incompetence, used to build monuments of nothingness, and those who use them are seldom good for anything else. There's a difference between an excuse and a reason. If your reason is a reason enough, then it's, it's viable, so that's a true reason. But excuses are usually thought about, and it's a process of how do I get out of this by using this? And so Moses tried to get out of it. What did he use, guys? You remember? What was his excuse? I stutter. I can't talk to the people. Oh, I got you. But what's interesting is how does God choose someone who is incapable, right, in quotes, of doing the very thing he wants them to go out and do? And that's to speak. What is God showing again? Uh, I'm going to give it away. A burning bush that doesn't what? Burn. So already God is trying to show that his patterns are not earthly patterns. I will choose someone who's incapable to make them capable so that in all, they will always rem be reminded of who? He did it. Outside of that, then what happens is you become good at your craft and you start to think that you are what? The one in charge, the one who actually made it happen. Nebuchadnezzar. Leader of the Babylonians, king of the Babylonians. He came out one day because everything was going very well for him. By the way, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is not just found in the Bible. You find them in Babylonian history. That's why the Bible is congruent with all historical books. If there's anything off, it's not based on it being off, but rather not understanding. And this man woke up one day, walked through the palace, looked around and said, wow, look at all that I did. Look at the things that I created. And the moment he did that, God said, oh, seriously? All right, well, let me just turn you into something else real fast. And he turned him into a 
a bare eagle. Y'all laughing or, or looking at me serious? He didn't turn him into a bare eagle. He just gave him a whole lot of hair and nails. His nails came out. He, he looked horrible. And he ate grass. Why? Because you want to be the one in charge. Okay. I'm going to show you what I'm capable of doing. And I'll make you the most successful crazy person. Because you, are, you thought you were successful in being great. Now I'm going to show you how to be successful in not being great. And he lasted like that for years until he repented. And God said, okay, let me change it up. Open heaven. Remember that. Open heaven. Number four. Number three, actually. Represent, representation of the law. The giving of the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, too many people have been caught up with law. And my wife said something in the prayer that I, it stuck out to me. So I'm, I took that and I said, let me just build on that for a minute. She said, rules and regulations. No rules and, y'all heard that when she said that? And if you're not understanding kingdom language, you can misinterpret that. Rules and regulations are for the violator. So anybody who smokes will look at a sign of no smoking and pay attention to it. If you don't smoke, it has nothing to do with you. You don't care to look at it. Only those who are violating will worry about the violations. So the Ten Commandments become these ten rules that encompass all these areas of just loving God and loving people. That's what it comes down to. Love God and love people. If you love God and you love people, then you will do the right thing. You don't murder anyone. You're not going to lie to anyone. You're not going to do all these different things that are against. But the top of that is to understand that purpose is given with the Ten Commandments. It's letting us know that God is still mindful of us. And he wants to make sure that we are preserved. The first four commandments are different from the other six I'm not going to get into that because I think I already went through that last week. But know that the first four have to do with God. And the other six have to do with humanity. All right, continue. Number four, so I can get through this last week's study. Divine identity and mission. Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry and unveils his divine identity. In the baptism of Jesus, by the way, was a signature moment. God loves signature moment. At that moment, the Father was present, the Son was present, and the Holy Spirit was present. Why is that important to know? Because at the end of the day, the open heaven that I'm going to talk about right now requires the following things. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. So this is the, uh, the conversation my wife had with me this morning coming to life. And what I believe had to be implemented in today's teaching. Matthew 3. When you... Oh. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching his message. And his message was, repent, 
of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the, for the Lord coming. Oh, I didn't see that top part there. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said that. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate, was obviously he ate locusts and wild honey. By the way, the locusts and wild honey is a message in itself. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now let's go, let's go to verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk, to him, out, talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. What causes an open heaven? Everything has instructions. And all of us are always praying for an open heaven. Lord, grant me an open heaven in my life. I need an open heaven. Well, let's look at the pattern here. One of the first things to obtain an open heaven, to be blessed beyond measure, because that's what an open heaven is, guys. An open heaven is not just your typical miracle moment. It's not just your typical good feel-good moment with God. It is an open heaven where everything that heaven has to offer belongs to you at that moment. So what causes an open heaven? What's the first thing Jesus did? I'm going to want you guys to help me on this one. What's the first thing Jesus did? What is the first element of an open heaven? Obedience. And they said at the same time, Spanish and in English, right? Obedience. The first thing is to move in obedience, and obedience attracts an open heaven. Heaven looks for obedience. That's one. Oh, y'all, y'all didn't, y'all don't care. I'm giving you, I'm giving you right now nuggets that you can apply immediately. Some of us have problem with obedience. Our issue is not anything else. We do everything. We help people. We do all that. But when it comes down for somebody to tell us to do it, we love to do it if it's our own concupiscence. But if someone tells us to do it, mm, and Jesus was clear on obeying just because the Father said so. So now that's a key element of an open heaven. Everybody with me so far? That's one. Number two. Number two. Somebody help me with number two. So obedience is one. What's the other one? Humility. Let's talk about that. Obedience, humility. What was the humility? Do you know that Jesus did not have to get baptized by an inferior human being? John the Baptist was inferior to Jesus. 
That means that John the Baptist, and he knew it, by the way. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. You should be baptizing me. By the way, I only use Matthew 4 because of what it explained, but the story is really in Luke chapter 3. I mean, chapter 4. No, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And what you find in there is this dialogue showing deference to submit to even someone who you think is not qualified. Submission, humility becomes one and the same. Man, why are we so hard-headed? Why, why, why is humanity so hard-headed that we want to always have our way? And an argument can not, listen, you can agree with the person in every aspect of what they're saying, but because your point was not brought across, you'll just stay arguing. I'm just going to argue with you just because. Why? If we came to a conclusion already, why are we still arguing? Because I want to have the last word. I want to be that last voice. Jesus deferred to John the Baptist. Humility causes an open heaven. Everybody, tell, everybody say that. Humility causes an open heaven. Your life right now, in just the two things that I mentioned, obedience and humility, can now lead you to seeing the result that Jesus had. Yet these are the two areas that are the most difficult. Who wants to be humble? <laughs> right? And even when you say you are humble, that's not humility. That becomes your badge. You know, I'm, I'm a humble person. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. There's no humility in that. There's a last one, a third one. Who said that? Sacrifice. Very good. Once you get to a place where you obey, where you are humble, and I'm going to do it in the order. It's humility first, obedience second, and execution, which is sacrifice third. Those three elements will cause you to have an open heaven. Do you know we are the reasons for things not working? I can't believe these just don't work for me. They just don't, they don't go right for me. I don't understand. And what you don't realize, you're the reason why. It has nothing to do with anybody around you. No one, don't blame anyone. It is you. You cause the heavens to close up on you when you have the opportunity for it to be an open heaven. It's a choice. That open heaven is available. And God says, just do those three things, and it will be opened up unto you. Redemption and spiritual deliverance. Jesus' mission centers on spiritual deliverance and redemption. His commission involves reconciling humanity to God through his sacrificial death and resurrection, offering forgiveness and salvation to all who what? Believe in him. Guys, let's not put the cart in front of the mule. Let's, not, let's, let's understand how this goes. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Clear. 
Check. That whomsoever, whomsoever what? Believes. Not whomsoever goes to a seminary. Maybe whomsoever goes, gets baptized. Guys, baptism is not the key to heaven. You cannot be baptized and still go to heaven. Baptism is a verbal or a universal or a outward expression to God, letting it be known, I'm with you. I'm down with you. And guess what? You can do it as many times as you want to. There is no law. That's why I talk about traditions. Oh, you can only do it one time. No. Because the truth about that moment is I am telling you I love you, Lord, in front of everyone. So I want to do it again next year. And maybe the year after that. Maybe two times next year. Who knows? Publicly. I just want to tell you as many times as I want. There are people who have been baptized every single time. They, every time they, they, they get baptized again. As many times as you want to. How can something so good be bad a second time? But what happens is tradition that has its day one will always start this trickle effect, causing people to believe, no, just one time. Can you imagine you were baptized as a baby? You're baptized as a baby because there's there some Protestant, not just Catholics, Protestant uh, denominations that actually believe in baptizing the baby. So you get baptized as a baby, and they ask you, you've been baptized? Yeah, I've been baptized. Do you remember? Isn't baptism supposed to be a moment of remembrance? Shouldn't you be able to remember your deliverance moment? Why did God allow such big miracles in the Exodus? So that it can be what? Remembered. And so if you were baptized as a baby, what remembrance do you have of a moment that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Like you're going to go to the baby, tell me about the resurrection. You know, you were baptized, right? Tell me about the resurrection. I was baptized at one years old. Tell me about the resurrection. You got to know about that. But the truth is, there's no way. And if you got to get baptized again, so be it. If maybe the first time you got it, you only got to the cross. You only know about the cross. It's up to the cross. You need to get to the resurrection. Because that going in the water, how was that? See that? How was that going in? You told me everything. You explained it to me this morning. I was like, wow, I want to cry with you. That was your first experience. And you have no words. Could you imagine? It's an expression. It's your exodus moment. And exodus always require water. All right, let's continue. I don't want to get into all that one. All right. The next one, the final one, is initiation of the new covenant. Initiation of the new covenant. Jesus' baptism signifies the initiation of the new covenant between God and humanity. His mission is to establish a new covenant that supersedes the old Mosaic covenant. Difference between superseding and removing. 
Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to supersede the law. He came to add an addendum to the law because his love supersedes the rules. Love supersedes the rules. This is why if you don't know this truth, you will condemn somebody to death. You don't even want to see them anymore because your law supersedes the love. Uh, let me say that again because you, you need to get this. You really need to get this. Someone who lives and dies by the rules will always look to see why I should be talking to you. Why should we be connected? And when that takes place, you end up not understanding the love part because everything requires a rule of engagement. I need to know why me and you are even in this place together. And because I know you did this, 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 and this, and this, I don't want to be a part of your life because you are not meeting my standard. You're not good enough because I found out that you do the same things I do. Nobody caught that one. I found out, guess what? You are, you do the same things I do in hiding, so you're, you don't qualify. The love of God supersedes those moments. If you truly have God's love, and yes, yes, you can be a Christian, and you can walk with Jesus, you can walk those seven miles with him and not know it's him. Be a Christian all these years, and you're wondering, you know why? If that stuff is still in you, and you can't release that, that means that the love of God is not superseding the rules of your life. So your regulations and your rules become stronger. That's what happened to the people of Israel when they left and went into the, the desert. See, the desert will always expose. Everybody say, the desert exposes. You got to say it with me. You got to say, the desert exposes. When you're hungry in the desert, you will find out if a person really wants to share with you. Ah. You will find out. When you're thirsty in the desert, you will find out who really wants your best interest. Because, you know, now we're both thirsty. Come on, you drink, you drink first, you drink first. Or, no, get out the way, man. All right, so I have an experience. And this experience is when I played football. You know, they would have us run for, I mean, our practices were ridiculous. They made no sense. They were archaic in nature. But by the end of the practice, it was a water break. So everyone's racing to go get the water. And yes, in a case like that, it's who gets there first. And then what you get to find, though, and, and, and know this, guys, you will get tested at the table every single time. There are people who know this, and they use it as a practice to know who you are. They will invite you out to dinner, and they will start watching your eating habits. They'll observe if you are glutton or not. 
they will see how many times you're you're willing to push aside and grab your own thing. I hope I'm not messing with nobody here. There's observation. Even God observes how you drink water. Acts Gideon and it's 300. If I put you in a situation where you are thirsty and hungry, what's going to be your reaction with the person next to you? So what happened? When, we, when they had the water there and the, uh, they had these Gatorade bottles, we would race. And, but you saw the difference between the ones who cared and the ones that didn't. The ones that didn't care, they took the bottle and they went to the side somewhere and they kept drinking. Now, that could be based on past experience. So I, I'm fa- it's fair for me to say that as well. But the ones that cared, you know what they did? They took the bottle, they drank a little bit, and if they were next to one of, their, one of the guys, we'd be like, and they would drink some of themselves and then go back again. There's a difference in personality or in character. Do you really care? Both Moses and Jesus received divine affirmation and authority for their missions. Moses through the burning encounter, burning bush encounter, and of course Jesus through the baptism. While Moses' commission focused on physical liberation from slavery, Jesus' mission emphasized spiritual liberation from sin and death. Moses' role as a lawgiver and mediator between God and the people of Israel contrasts with Jesus' role between God and all of humanity. So while Moses was focusing on one group, Jesus was focusing on all of humanity. Moses' commission is bound to a specific people. I mentioned that. And deliverances from Egypt. In essence, in essence, both Moses and Jesus were divinely commissioned for crucial roles in God's plan for humanity. But their missions differ. Luke focuses more on the mission that Jesus had, and there's going to be a story I'm going to present. If I have time today in the Bible, I'll present it today. If not, we're going to do it for next week. And that mission shows the area of being found. Being found, being selected, being chosen. I say if you're here, you've been found, selected, and chosen for whatever assignment has been handed over to the flow. Some of us may just be passing by. Some of us may be permanent. Bottom line is everybody gets to partake in whatever it is that's here and available. Jesus' baptism marked the initiation of a new covenant and the eternal covenant with humanity and God. All right, we're done with um, week, that was week three, by the way. Let's get into week four. Everything I just went over was week three. So now we're going into week four. And hopefully I'm able to finish all of week four. Critical examination of the Israelites, if the Israelites, the Israelites from Exodus and their Exodus from Egypt in the book of Exodus. One of the things that I want to make sure we we are clear on is that these Egyptians 
were not God-fearing people. They were taught to enjoy life to the point where life after death was more important than death leading into life. Let me say that. Let me say that better. They were so caught up with earthly ways of doing things that they would mummify their people because they believed that the mummies that would receive whatever trinkets, gold items, they would be able to take that with them into the afterlife. Was that, is that clear? They would build pyramids and chambers. You know how crazy this is, guys? Do you know that if a, a pharaoh had a group of priests, the day the pharaoh dies was not just his death. The day the pharaoh dies, those priests know that it's the end of their time too. Why? Because they were, they were put in the same chamber where the pharaoh was. And the pharaoh, that chamber gets sealed. Why? Because the goal was to make sure that the pharaoh was okay. You're going to be taken care of. Their concept of life after death was so warped. That's why we needed Jesus to put it right. I have mansions that go beyond the flesh. They were still trying to satisfy the flesh even after death. Did you catch that? They wanted the flesh to partake in moments that obviously you're, you're dirt now, but they would mummify you and remove your vital organs, by the way. They, they literally would take the brain out, Take the heart out. All that stuff would take, but you're there. And they believed that everything would take place in that moment. They would put all types of gold. They didn't want you to be broke in the afterlife. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And then the Greeks, the Greeks had even a more similar scenario where they would put two coins on, your, on the eyes, right? Because you had to pay the person in the afterlife, I forget the name of the person, you might have to have the money to pay to be able to get on the boat to be able to get to the other side. Listen, traditions all have a what? A day one. Somebody thought about that on a day one. This is a great idea. <laughs> come on, come on, get the money out of your pocket. Come here. Put this. Ugh. Now it makes all the sense in the world. Now you can get to the afterlife. We see that as ridiculous, but this is what they brought to the table. So when you think Egyptians, think of this mindset that believes that this connection between earth and the spiritual realm is so close that you need to make payment for it or you need to have earthly items to be able to enjoy yourself in the afterlife. Who was it that ended up dying? Ah, of course, the real story of Troy. Because there's the, the movie version and then there's the real story. And there was a guy there, um, Hector was his name. Hector ends up getting killed. 
And all the father wanted to do was chase after, just get him to get those two coins on his eyes. Because he wanted to make sure that he had paid passage. Guys, the confusion here about the afterlife is a big confusion. People don't understand that there's a reason why we are flesh, body, soul, and spirit. Why soul and spirit? Because those are the two invisible parts of us that require a touch from God so that the flesh no longer is the dominant force. Because even now, do you know that if you're bored right now, that's your flesh dominating? Listen, this is a battle for your mind, for your soul. And every time you come here, you're breaking a pattern that the enemy wants you to follow through. He wants you to not be a part of this pattern of coming to church. He wants you to be in a pattern of not coming. You know why? Because the more instructions you have, the more that's passed on to your children. And generational prosperity is not finances. It's the information you give to the next generation. And we lose that. Because we start getting so caught up in the now. Hmm. The revelation found in the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt is multifaceted and carries several important themes. So I'm going to go over one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven themes. First was divine liberation. Divine liberation. The Exodus reveals the concept of divine liberation where God intervenes to free the oppressed. God is always close to the oppressed. You can get a revival faster in a Honduran or or a South American place where there's nothing. You'll get a revival like this, open heavens immediately because humility is not a problem for them. Here in the United States, You see people trying to get revival, revival, and they'll race to a church because they heard revivals over there. What they don't know is that when they get there, it ends. I didn't get that. Sometimes it's the persons that are seeking it the most that have a problem with obtaining it and retaining it. Obtaining it and retaining it. Why? Because their wine skin is altered it's old it's antiquated and because the wineskin is old and antiquated they cannot obtain new wine so there you know what their revival is their revival is like for two weeks because by the time you look it this drip is all over the place because we don't understand that revival is not about this area of a feeling It's about a shifting in people's characters. It is about paradigm shift entirely. If you come to services and you still do the same things, if this has become accustomed to you, listen carefully. If this has become accustomed to you to the point where you just come and it's like a, you know, a good luck charm for the rest of the week, you have a problem. If you're not able to take this information and apply it a minute after leaving here, Some of you will be tested today. 
you will be tested today to see if you really learned something from today. Because a lot of us are professional churchgoers and not discipled. Oh, that was with all the love in the world. Because at the end of the day, if you become professional at this, it's a dangerous place to be. I urge you to always look for the wow in something. Oh, there's got to look for God in that. Because if you're looking for the flaws, I'm going to tell you, oh, this is good. Oh, Jesus. So everybody, anybody here house the Holy Spirit in them? Show of hands. You, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He, even if you didn't raise your hand, he still knows that, you know, that's part of the flaw, right? I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to be real. I raise my hand, but I realize that my flaws are greater than his housing. Did you understand that? Did you understand that? If you didn't say, you could say no, I promise you. It's okay. My flaws up here in the arena of projecting and being an orator, being a preacher, you will find more flaws in me than the housing of the Spirit of God in me. And it's going to be up to you what movie you want to see. You got to know, what movie do you really want to see? Which is the one that's going to bless you? My flaws or God in me? Because I could be here and you can look, look me up and down and look at the shoes he's wearing. He's wearing a vest today. He usually wears a jacket. And get so caught up in the things that I lack that you are not a participant in the things that are given to you, for you. Covenant and chosenness. Covenant and chosenness. Through the book of Exodus, God establishes a covenant with the Israelites, marking them as his chosen people. The key chapters of all that I'm teaching today are the chapters 13 through 15. Chapters 13 through 15. Saddest thing in the world is when you're taught something and the moment you, let me say it right. Saddest thing in the world is when you're taught something and you agree to it and don't do it. Let me say that again. Saddest, saddest thing in the world is when you're taught something, you agree with it, and you don't do it. Because right now, there are more people saying amen to a thing than doing the thing. Everybody say amen. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Faith and obedience. I'm going to try to fly through this. I know we have time. We have too much time. Faith and obedience. The Exodus narrative underscores the importance of faith and obedience. We talked about it earlier. The Israelites journeyed through the desert test. Test their trust in God's guidance. Faith and obedience will test your trust in God's guidance. 
And if you're, you're being tested, stop looking for an answer during the test. Stop. Any educators here? Show of hands. That was good, right? You see how I did that? Any educators here? Show of hands. Thank you, Lord. I'll take that one as a show of hands. When you give a test, are you going around giving the answers? You're an educator. You're an educator. My point is this. When you're giving something to someone to pass, are you walking around going, wait, you know, the answer is B. The answer is B. The answer is C. You're an educator. Do you give the answers to the children when they're in test mode? Why not? Oh, Jesus, she said it. I need the information, the data to see what? What they know to do what? Whatever it is that needs to be adjusted, I need to know. Because it is a process of progression. So guess what, folks? Sometimes our process of progression is during a test moment. And if we want answers during the test, you're going to be highly disappointed because you're going to have your hand raised up during the test. And what are you going to do, teacher? Put your hand down. What, what do you want? Put your hand down. You probably don't do it that way. You're probably really pleasant. There you go. <laughs> like I said, some, you know, she, she's dealing with a certain group of people, though, ages. The age group, mm, the age group changes the tone. Oh, that's good. That's good. Because you are younger in the spirit, God will speak to you. Say that again. What do you say? Try your best. <laughs> you can do it. But when you're older oh. and you're a teenager, Nada. any other educators here? Educators, educators. <laughs> Man, you better put your hand down. Put your hand down. What do you do? I'm an educator. It's what I do. I understand that there are people, and even within that grade, there are people within that grade that I got to speak to differently. Even though they're in master's program in college, I'm dead serious too right now. Master's program, they already got their bachelor, they got that diploma, the high school diploma, bachelor's, they're a master's students. I got to change my tone a little bit because some will take offense to a sound. And sometimes God will speak real loud. And God, that's it. I don't want, I don't want to live anymore. That's it. I, God can't stand. What? And it's a test to see what we do in that moment. Let's not raise our hands and expect a voice during the time that we're being tested. God ain't speaking to me. You're in a test. 
God hasn't spoken to me in a long time. You've been tested for a long time because you probably haven't passed it. And you're still, you're still on number five, right? Oh, you do the, no, close your eyes. And... <laughs> y'all laughing because y'all did that. Y'all did that. Yep, close your eyes and just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. In the name of Jesus, so. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh-huh. Just, justice and judgment. Justice and judgment. The plagues upon Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea demonstrate God's justice and judgment. Pharaoh's stubbornness and oppression led to consequences, showcasing that actions have repercussions. Guys, people got this all mixed up with the Pharaoh. Do you know the Pharaoh's heart was softened at one point? Like he, I think after the first one, he was like, all right. The word says, but God hardened his heart. What does that mean? That means, yes, the word says God hardened his heart. That means that at any given moment when God is telling you and working with you, and you feel like you, you got it, your prayer was answered, and all of a sudden here comes Jack from the store down the block comes in and blocks your blessing or, or even better than that, let me rewind. You are working at your job and your, te- or your, your, um, your boss tells you, great job, you did, you're doing wonderful, I like what you're doing. And all of a sudden, at the end of the day goes, you need to do that one over again. I, I thought it was good, but it wasn't. The hardening of a heart of someone around you is a part of your growth. Sometimes people that are around you will harden their heart, and you're like, where did that come from? Why did they, why are they talking to me like this? Just a little while ago, they were, they were cool with me. Well, God has the ability in the middle of your test, in the middle of your exodus, to harden the heart of that person who was supposed to let you go at the moment. Why? Because in the process of stats, looking at the statistics of that child, there are things that need to be checked off. If they're not checked off, that part does not get better. Everybody's understanding what I'm saying? You need to see all the stages. And for the Israelites, it was 10. That's why they had 10 plagues. They had a stage, and what do you do in that moment? It wasn't the plagues on them. It was they're witnessing the plagues on others. How do you react? Ah, Jesus. Are you eager to see your enemies fall? You think that those 10 plagues were for just the, uh, the Egyptians? It was for the hearts of the Israelites. Are you enjoying this? God had to measure, and that's the reason why the Israelites, I might as well touch on this a little bit, the Israelites did not, the majority of the people, majority, my God, almost everyone, almost everyone did not make it to the promised land. As a matter of fact, only two from the original crew made it through. That rhymed. Only two. 
Joshua and Caleb. God was talking to two individuals when he was saying, you guys are going to make it through. He was on a, God, God was on a mountain looking at all these millions of people, and he said, you guys are going to make it. <laughs> and the only ones that he was talking to were two individuals, not even Moses. Identity and nationhood. The Exodus solidifies the Israelites' identity as a distinct nation. Their journey from slavery to freedom establishes a shared history and cultural narrative. It obviously shapes their collective identity. But more than that, it gives us a starting point. So now, do we have that picture of, of the, uh, the blood over the doorway? Can we put that up, please? I want to show you what this Exodus scenario really is. When the Egyptians, this is the last plague, by the way, the very last plague. So this is how many times God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, right? To the point where the sacrifice of sacrifices had to be demonstrated. Anybody tell me, can tell me what the, what the sacrifice was? What, was? what was the curse or the, the last plague? Huh? Death of the firstborn. Why would God choose the death of the firstborn to be the last one? Because what? Because that was he, what he was going to do. But you can say what he did too. Because it's past as well. That's, that's just, let me stop. Let me stop that. I mean, because that goes into the whole cycle of Crucified before the, the, the creation of the, of the universe. All right. So what do we find here? This is the true element of our salvation. In the book of Luke, we are confronted with Jesus on the cross. In Exodus, we are confronted with blood over a doorway. What's the difference? <laughs> Here's the difference. If a firstborn person or animal, better, if a firstborn priest, high priest of the tribe of the Kohathites, of the Levitical order, high priest, was outside and he was a firstborn when death was passing by, would he live? Let me say it again. Let me say it again. You got to catch this. Remember the plague was death was going to pass on by. That's why it's called the Passover. And anyone who was a firstborn son, daughter, firstborn animal, whatever it was, and was not covered, they would what? All right. A high priest who did everything right all of his life, who was of the Kohathite order, Kwanim, to be exact. He did the sacrifices and followed through on everything in order. And let's say he stayed, he went outside to, to try to guide everybody into their homes. Come on, guys, just get in. Get in. I love all of you. Just go in. I love everybody. Bullhorn, come on over there in that corner. Get in. And death passed by. 
I spoke with a fist. You heard that? That was weird. And death passed by. What would have happened to that Kohathite slash Kohanim slash high priest? Huh? Se muere. Morto. He dies. You know why? What was the biggest factor there in that particular story? He wasn't covered by the blood of the sacrifice. Not because you're good. Not because you did the right thing. Not because you try to help people out. You were not in the place that would cover you and shield you from the outside element that was to kill you. Everybody with me? All right, well, let's talk about this opposite thing. How about someone who was the thief of the town? He was, everybody knew he was a thief. Every time they see him, they go, let me put this stuff away. That was a thief, and he was the one who did all wrong things, everything bad, everything, everything. He was the firstborn, though. Did everything wrong, but he heard and paid attention to the story and said, whoa, what's going to happen? And then steals his way into somebody's home. <laughs> Not even his home. He snuck in. When death passed by, what happened to him? So the judgment was not based on actions taken or things you did right or wrong. Your judgment was based on obedience and being in the place you need to be covered. Uh. And while in there, the expectation is that you get better. That's the expectation. Because if you're shielded by the blood, while you're in the place where the blood is covering you, the anointing of that protection starts to infiltrate in you and starts changing the way you think. This is why it's so important if you understand the Passover, you understand the cross. It was the blood of the lamb that was placed over the doorway, God is immutable. How did I start this off? God is immutable. He does the same things over and over again. He just does it differently, but it's the same thing. This is the cross. This is the cross right here. It is blood over the doorway, stay under the blood, and you will not be picked off by death. Eternal lessons. The Exodus story continues to provide timeless lessons about faith, about perseverance, about God's justice. Now, you can be like so, I'm only going to use this because it's the darkest person I could think of right now, darkest person. If Adolf Hitler ran into the house when death was passing by, Question for everyone here. No, you're going to be a part of this one. Show of hands, how many believe that Adolf Hitler would have been saved from the, that 
Show of hands. Right? Y'all believe that? Did you know what you just said? You asked this to a Jewish person. Now, this is one of the... By the way, this here, what I'm doing right now, is not original today. I did this with somebody who was Jewish. Yeah, because their, their, their legality is, is, is so strong that I, I actually presented this situation. It was a tough one. They were, they were indignant, but they understood what I was saying. I said, what was the law? What took place? What was the thing? Not the law. I said, what was the thing that needed to happen? And they explained. And I gave the example of the priest. And they couldn't deny the fact that there is a truth in this where even somebody who persecuted the Jews in that such a high level would still be protected by, mind you, I didn't say Jesus. Folks, I didn't say Jesus. I used the... <laughs> I use the Exodus story because if I say Jesus, they'll, they'll completely deny that and de de reject it. But I use this story and I said, what do you think about that? The answer is clear. So what do you tell somebody in the street? Somebody who's tatted up? Somebody who ain't right? What do you tell them? Well, you can use the story, by the way. You can use this story in Exodus for salvation in Jesus. We can use this story here to evangelize to people and let them know God wants you in the place of protection. Because death right now, guys, is passing by. I don't know if you know this, and not to put fear in anyone because I am not afraid. I'm not afraid. You shouldn't be afraid either. There's a new variant that just came out of nowhere. This one, this one doesn't stop you from breathing, even though you can, you can stop breathing from it, right? But this one's more focused on the pains in your body. Another variant. Where are these things coming from? Well, death keeps passing by. And if you're not under the blood, that death that keeps passing by can touch you. And death is not necessarily dying right away. Death could be a slow death. It could be death in your finances. It could be death in your relationships at home. Stay under the blood. And death has to pass by. In essence, the revelation in the Exodus narrative speaks to God's sovereignty, his commitment to his people, and the transformative power of liberation and faith. It holds profound significance for understanding God's relationship with humanity and the principles that guide ethical and moral behavior. All right. We don't have time to continue on to the book of Luke, so I'm going to have to uh, continue this for the next one. But what I will say about Luke, Luke has a tendency to talk about things that are lost. Everybody go to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. 
So there are parables in the book of Luke that you won't find anywhere else. You're just not going to find it. Luke 15 has three major parables that for me, for me, essentially speaks of the type of people that we're going to come across. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. It says here, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99? You know the story. Leave the 99 behind in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my little sheep. In the same way, there are more, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God and than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So there's more of a celebration of a comeback than a remaining. The lost sheep is significant because it speaks of being lost because you decided to steer away from the 99. How did that one get lost? Because he no longer felt compelled to move with the 99. You don't get lost unless you, in that story, unless you intentionally walk away. But Jesus, in his love and his grace, will still go and search for you. Now, why would he leave the 99 behind? What happened yesterday, and I'm not Jesus, what happened yesterday? You kind of could put it all together. He trusted the teaching and the foundation. I trusted the teachings and the foundations in this church, and I knew that the 99 would be able to handle it. You only leave a 99 group of 99 unless you, you have to believe that they're able to take care of themselves. Because he's not going to condemn the 99 to death. But he walks away from the 99 and says, you guys got this, man. You're, you're a 99. Let me just go get the one. And getting the one, the celebration of the one, was greater than the celebration of the 99 sustaining. All right. Next one. Next one is short. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now, that story sounds like the, the first one, but it's not. Very different. The first one, it is the individual who, who intentionally lost themselves. They veered off. The second one is a thoughtless coin where the leader was the one who lost it. Did you catch that? The woman represents the one who lost the coin. Where in the first one, it was the sheep that got lost. Again, sounds the same, but it isn't. Negligence of the leader in this case 
or whoever's in charge of the coins is what we're looking at here because it got lost. But then what, what happens afterwards? What does that person end up remembering? To do what? What does she do? She searched. What did she do, though? She swept. She looked everywhere. In other words, I got to find my coin that I lost. Not that the person got lost. I lost the coin. I take the blame. I'm the one who has to make sure I find the coin. And then the last one, and with this I'm going to close out. The last one is the one that everyone knows about. It's the famous prodigal son. The prodigal son who thought that he had it all. (sighs) It is sad when you believe that you are already deserving of something. The word here is entitlement. And some of us can get into a place of entitlement so bad that we believe that we deserve everything. And how dare you not acknowledge me? How dare you not see what I do? How dare, how dare, how dare? And then take off. But this takeoff is not like the first one because the first one was based on ignorance. Or should I say, not following the other group. In this case, is I'm leaving out of rebellion and I know I got what I got. Because of me, I can do this. I can go out there, just give me my inheritance now. That's what he told his father. I want it right now. I know that it was saved for me later on, but I want it now. So the father does what? Gives it to him. What does he do with it? What's the word? Splurge. Splurges, and unfortunately, in that splurge, ends up not having anything but remembers who. It's so interesting. I know some people, when they read this story, they kind of go, wow, but at least he came back to his senses. He did, but he was kind of smart too. Because one of the things he did was he said, he, he planned his, his storyline. He planned his storyline. He said, you know what, I'll go back to my father and and I'll tell him, Father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I don't want to come back as a son. I'll come back as a servant just to serve. Could you de-son yourself? Think about that for a minute. He comes back. Are you capable of removing the sonship? Yeah, you took the inheritance, but do you remain a son? This is the reason why the father every day would come out and look to see. But then you also got haters, right? Who are the haters? The haters are the ones that stay in the house, cleaning up the house, doing the house, and know that they have an inheritance, and They see the father still trying to look for the son like, are you kidding me? Oh, this person's here. This person came back. Y'all not hearing me. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. Love me. Because sometimes we, listen, 
Sometimes we get to a place where we don't want to hear something that is actually an actual occurrence. We don't want to hear that. The truth is, somebody comes back who took their inheritance and left. God told me to tell this church, be prepared for some will come to their scruples and they will come back and you are going to have to be the older son who says, what? Father, I've been here with you all these days. I'm the one, not this vagabond. And you will be tested as a son and a daughter. Because the thing is, we don't want that. For, we, we want it for us. Because like if we were the ones who, were, who, were, who did that, we want that for us. We don't want it for the other person, especially if I've been here. I've been here with you. I've been here with you. Thick and thin, I've been here with you. I've been here with you. Yeah, I know. What does the word say? What is, the, what is, what is true love in the body of Christ? My prayer is that we truly get to that essence of love, that we start learning what it means to love beyond my feelings. Wow, that's crazy. Love beyond your feelings. Because your feelings will lie to you. And you'll always go back to what the person did to you negatively, adversely. And uh, nope, nope. Now I'm never going to want you. No, don't want that person. Don't want that person. God's going to test you. Like right now, if you close your eyes and you think about that person, how do you feel? Close your eyes. That person's walking right through the door right now. Close your eyes. I heard somebody say, mm-mm. 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 No, no, no. You will be tested. And God's going to test your love. Are you housing the Spirit of God? It is easier to fake the gifts of the Spirit than the fruit of the Spirit. Please stand.